This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. So why do seagulls live near the sea? Because if they live near the bay, they'd be bagels. Welcome to Wings and Things, where you'll find real answers to real questions about everything you want to know about pet birds. Care, feeding, bird products, travel, and more. Everything to make your frequent flyer a happy camper. From parrots to parakeets, cockatiels to cockatoos, you'll have a bird's eye view of everything there is to know about your fun, feathered friends. So, spread your wings and get ready to fly on Wings and Things. Welcome to Wings and Things on Pet Life Radio. I'm your host, Barbara Heidenreich from Good Bird, Inc. Robin Shawokas has the week off. This week, we have special guest Rebecca O'Connor, author of A Parrot for Life. We'll be right back after these messages. Sitting on a branch overlooking the parking lot, the pigeons watched as a Mercedes pulled in below them. What do you think, one bird said to the other. Should we put a deposit on that car? Stay perched. Wings and Things will be soaring back right after these messages. What if you could protect the life of your cat with something so simple and affordable that you already use every day? Get ready for the evolution of kitty litter. It's Pretty Litter. Along with all the features you've come to expect from your kitty litter, Pretty Litter's patented and scientific formula will also monitor your cat's health and detect illnesses early while providing industry-leading odor control. Two kitty litters, same cat, same price. But there's one important difference. Pretty Litter reacts to your cat's waste by detecting health issues simply by changing color. And the key is that Pretty Litter detects these issues before your cat shows symptoms of physical illness or pain, likely saving you major dollars in vet bills while protecting the health of your cat. What do you think, little guy? Ready to switch litter? Pretty Litter. Colorful insight into your cat's health. Go to prettylittercats.com forward slash cat 101 or use coupon code cat 101 to get 20% off your first subscription order. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. A Frenchman walks into a bar with a parrot on his shoulder. The bartender asks, where did you get that thing? The parrot replies, in France. There are millions of them. Don't have a canary. Wings and Things is back. Welcome back to Wings and Things on Pet Life Radio. Our guest today is Rebecca O'Connor, author of The Parrot for Life. Hi, Rebecca. Hi, Barbara. Thanks for having me. Well, some people may not know this, but Rebecca and I worked together for a number of years at Natural Encounters in uh, Florida doing a show at Disney's Animal Kingdom. And uh, back then, I knew you, I guess, as a falconer. I did start my uh, animal training career in falconry. I've been flying birds of prey now for about 13 years. I'm a master falconer. Oh, I didn't Ooh. know that. <laughs> <laughs> Which doesn't really mean a whole lot, except that I did apprentice under someone for a couple of years, and I took a test in order to be an apprentice. And then ha- you have to have at least five years of working with a bird of prey, and they um, give you the title of master. Well, I think one thing that a lot of people don't know about is that falconry is actually regulated by the U.S. government. It is. Um, falconry is regulated both by um, U.S. Fish and Wildlife and by state authorities, uh, depending on what state you're in. For me, I'm in California, so it's California Fishing Game. And so there's a lot of licensing that's required. And 
um, you know, testing and the uh, state authorities check to make sure that your facilities are up to par. And it's a pretty in-depth endeavor in order to fly a bird of prey. Yeah, and I've noticed that falconers tend to be pretty dedicated because it's more than just having a bird and, and, you know, feeding it and all that kind of stuff because there's a lot of training that goes into being able to take that bird outside to actually practice the sport of falconry. Absolutely. I would say, actually, I've heard a lot of falconers say that falconry isn't really a hobby so much as it is a lifestyle. Um, You end up sort of changing your whole life around how you can best set yourself up to fly a bird on a day-to-day basis. For example, you really need to have a job that will make concessions for the days when your falcon flies away and you can't come in at 8 o'clock in the morning. So um, it's definitely a lifestyle choice. Yeah, and one of the things that a lot of people may not know about is that when you fly a falcon, typically people are putting radio telemetry on their birds, which helps you recover them. Theoretically, it does help you recover your bird. (laughs) But yes, generally you fly a bird of prey, especially a falcon who can be 25 miles away in a matter of an hour or so um, with two transmitters. Um, They're often positioned on the tail and on the leg or on a backpack mount. And um, that means that you're running around with a radio receiver trying to figure out where that signal is coming from and hoping that you can find your falcon and he's hungry enough that he will come back to you. And worst case scenario, you're uh, renting a plane (laughs) to fly around the state and figure out where that signal might be. So we were right when we said that falconers tend to be pretty dedicated to the sport. (laughs) Good point, Barbara. (laughs) If you're renting a plane and all. (laughs) Um, I know we're we're going to talk about your writings and things like that, but I think it's really interesting for people to learn a little bit about falconry because um, most people may not be familiar with the sport. Um, but one of the things that I think is really fascinating from a training perspective is that many falconers will use a dog in conjunction with the bird, um, and there's an interesting dynamic that goes on there. And I know you hunt with using some trained dogs that work with your birds as well. So maybe you can share a little bit about how that works and what goes into training those animals to work together. Sure. I mean, I've I was an exotic animal trainer, um, falcons, parrots, mammals. For, I don't know, maybe 10 years before I got my first dog. And um, I know you can relate to this, Barbara. You get a dog and you're like, wow, a dog actually wants to do what I'm training it to do. They're so much easier. Um, but it is a fascinating dynamic when you... Um, insert a dog into your falconry. I wouldn't do it without a dog now. Um, my dogs are basically trained to sometimes discover the game and point it out. Oftentimes um, I'm hunting ducks and the dog's job is to get the ducks off the pond because if there's a falcon above the ducks, they have no desire to leave. And the hunting requires that the bird hit the duck above land. So you have to get the ducks off the water. And then the other very, very important job that the dogs have is to go find the falcon and lay down with the falcon because the dogs can get there a lot faster than I can. Um, contrary to what people, most people guess, the falcon does not bring the food back to me. He's out in the field wherever he caught it. The dog goes out, lays down with the falcon and makes sure that eagles, coyotes, larger falcons and hawks don't eat my falcon before I can get there. So it's a really, it's an interesting dynamic, but the falcon 
figures out that he is more likely to catch prey when the dog is there, and the dogs figure out that they're more likely to get a tasty tidbit like some quail or whatever happens to be in my pocket if they work with the falcons. So it's a really neat dynamic. And I've heard that falcons can learn to recognize their own dog. So if there's other animals in the area, they stick close to their dog. They don't necessarily go follow someone else's dog. Absolutely. I mean, they're so visual. And, you know, dogs, every breed, every individual looks really different. So they they know. And they also judge behavior really well. Like a falcon can tell when a dog has learned how to act appropriately around falcons and they they'll sit in the yard very calm but if a puppy comes running through they know they're like eh, i don't want anything to do with that dog that dog's nutty it's a puppy so they they read behavior just like you know we do when we're working with our birds and training them i have to say it's been the few times i've been able to be out in a field with a falconer it's a really interesting learning experience because you see that relationship between the bird and the dog and so that bird's up there in the air working the air watching the dog working the ground and you're out there along for the ride as well but of course a part of the training as well and it's just such an interesting experience i think it's a really valuable thing for people who want to learn a little bit more about training to watch that interaction happen so one thing I wanted to have you explain a little bit is just exactly what, maybe a little history about falconry and, and how it came to be, perhaps, and why people participate in the sport and that it is, you know, actually a way to acquire food for the falcon as well as for the falconer if you eat game. Well, I think initially falconry was really about bringing meat to the table. I mean, way back when, no refrigeration, what you caught, you had to eat right away, um, no firearms, a falcon made good sense or a goshawk or you know whatever you happen to be flying um it's got a good 4000 year history and i think now the folks that are falconers are falconers because they're they're very dedicated animal trainers and to me it's just extreme bird watching you know it's an opportunity to get out into the field and see not only what a bird of prey would do in the wild but what the species that that bird of prey hunts would do in the wild Um, It's just as exciting when the falcon catches nothing as when he catches something because I see, you know, ducks or whatever my quarry is at at the moment do amazing things to evade the falcon that, you know, makes them my heroes instead of the falcon. So it's, it's a really neat perspective. And it does in a lot of ways really inform the way I train parrots. Explain that a little bit. How (laughs) how has it influenced, we should probably jump into some of that now. How has it influenced the way you train parrots? Well, since I come from a background of flying a bird of prey, which at any given moment I can lose and have to go rent a Cessna and spend two days flying around finding it, um, that has really convinced me that the very best way to train is through positive reinforcement. Uh, unlike parrots, the falcon is not a social species. He doesn't necessarily want to be around me for a head scratch or for my my nice company. Um, he is willing to spend time with me because... I have convinced him that I am the very best way to get a meal. So that means that any mistakes I make in his training, whether that, you know, be being heavy handed, using punishment, doing anything that's considered a negative to him has um, a very dramatic influence on my relationship. So coming from that background, it's hard not to walk into a relationship with a parrot without worrying that anything negative will affect that relationship. It's made me ultra sensitive to always using the positive. 
Oh, and what a great learning experience. I think most people don't have that opportunity to learn how valuable it is to be careful in the way you interact with the parrot. And that heavy-handed approach is maybe in the home may mean you might get bit or maybe the bird goes to the other side of the cage. But for you, as you're saying, it means I might be chasing my bird for three or four days out there in the wilderness. Or more than that, I might actually get my falcon killed. I mean, there's he's got a pretty dangerous occupation. Being a bird of prey that's hunting, he could lose his life flying through power lines, crossing the street, getting caught by a bigger predator. Um, and if I make a training mistake and he flies off, he has more opportunities to get himself into a bad situation. So for me using positive reinforcement as a matter of life and death. Absolutely. And obviously, um, positive reinforcement has been a part of your training for your animals in your home. But um, as we mentioned earlier, we met doing bird shows at Disney's Animal Kingdom, but you also worked on other shows with other species of animals. Maybe you can share a little bit about those animals you worked with. Um, sure. I've worked with uh, just about every species of bird I can think of, but I've also worked with... Uh, I had a really fantastic opportunity to raise a cheetah who worked with a Labrador. So, you know, falcons and bird dogs, cheetahs and bird dogs, it all comes together somehow. But I, I, my understanding, too, and you can probably elaborate on this, is that that was also um, a, a sporting thing way back when, that cheetahs were raised with dogs so that the kings with the cheetahs out hunting. Is that correct? Well, the cheetahs, they did actually hunt with cheetahs. Actually, there are some people who still do hunt with cheetahs. Uh-huh. Um, cheetahs are a very different sort of cat, a little bit more, um, a little bit more prone to being willing to interact with human beings as opposed to other cats. Plus, you know, they have, uh, they're really built for speed and yeah, in India and in the Middle East, they, they did, you know, hood cheetahs, just like you hood a falcon and they would take them out, unhood them, release them to go catch, uh, I think primarily gazelles, jackrabbits, things like that. So I don't know that they, they may or may not have had dogs involved in that, but, uh, the cheetah and the Labrador that grew up together and they had a really neat relationship so it again you know a very different perspective on training animals and i should mention if you are uh, ever in southern california and go to the san diego wild animal park they do a presentation down there with their cheetahs where they uh it's a little extra fee but you get to see um how the cheetahs run for prey and they also have their dog companions with them that they actually live with um in the same enclosure and usually when they do that demonstration they also do a falcon lure flying demonstration as well as long as it's not too hot of a day out there so you get to get the experience of the the king's hunting party i believe they call that experience so pretty cool well um we don't want to forget that that rebecca is a world famous author (laughs) so what i think we'll do is we'll take a little break and when we come back we're going to talk about all the wonderful things that becca has written and um we'll touch base on that in just a few minutes stay perched wings and things will be soaring back right after these messages Put on a perfectly possum pet party. Having an awesome birthday or adoption day celebration for your four-legged friend? Or just want a fun excuse to throw a fun party with your friends from the dog park? Deck out your party with Molly and Bandit Pet Party Accessories. Party products designed specifically for pets. There are wearables, including adjustable pet party hats, bow ties, and tutus. The photoprop kits include funny glasses and hats. The party supplies and decorations include coordinating table covers, party banners, cake decorations, and treat bowls, cups, and bags. Everything you need to create great memories and Instagram-worthy photos. They're available 
available in two colorful themes, Tropical and Fireman. It's a dog's life. Celebrate it with Molly and Bandit Pet Party at mollyandbanditpetparty.com slash petlife. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. A Frenchman walks into a bar with a parrot on his shoulder. The bartender asks, where did you get that thing? The parrot replies, in France. There are millions of them. Don't have a canary. Wings and Things is back. Welcome back to Wings and Things on Pet Life Radio. I'm your host, Barbara Heidenreich, and I have Rebecca O'Connor with me today, and she's the author of A Parrot for Life. Now, we've talked a whole bunch about all her experience working with birds and other animals and animal training, but many people know her as an author, and uh, and many people don't know that that was really kind of your first love, wasn't it? You know, my, my first loves were sort of a combo thing. Um, my family always jokes with me about how my life's all about birds and words. I grew up bringing home baby birds as soon as I was old enough to find fledglings and drive my grandparents who raised me nuts bringing home baby birds but I also loved to write and started out as an avian science major at UC Davis but had a little bit of difficulty with chemistry and calculus. Hey I went to that school too I know the classes you're talking about. (laughs) But yeah so I ultimately changed my major to English and I have a bachelor's degree and a master's degree in creative writing so I do spend a lot of time writing, and um, I have nine books published now. Ooh, now, now most of us know A Parrot for Life, and we'll talk more about that in just a minute, but tell us about some of these other books, if you can remember all <laughs> nine of them. Well, they're not really all that exciting, but um, I have a handful of young adult reference books. I've written books on endangered owls, endangered frogs and toads, acid rain. I've edited some books on um, questions that kids might ask and want information when they're writing a report like, is there life after death? How should the world deal with natural disasters? I also wrote a romance novel, Falcon's Return. Was that your first uh, piece of uh, fiction? That was published? Yes, it was, yeah. And I think you might remember me deciding that I was going to finish my first book. And I thought that it would be fun to write a romance novel. And I finished it, I think, while I was working at putting together and running a show at Toledo Zoo. And I finished it, and lo and behold, someone published it. (laughs) But A Parrot for Life is uh, my most, well, my second most recent one. I just had a book come out on Finches, too, from TFH. So let's talk a little bit about Parrot for Life. Why did you write Parrot for Life in the first place? What inspired you to write that book? Well, I've had uh, parrots now for, God, I think all my parrots are 14 years old. And um, I really wanted to write a book, the sort of book that I would have loved to have had when I first got my parrots. I wanted to write something that was a little bit more approachable, that felt like, you know, you were sitting in your living room having a conversation with a friend who was trying to give you advice on their experiences and what you should do. But I also was really dedicated to getting um, the very best science and the very best information that I could. And obviously, I've written reference books, so I was able to do my homework and... I w- was hopeful that with my degrees, I, it would be a really approachable, well-written book. And then I was fortunate enough to have a lot of great friends like you, Barbara, and Susan Friedman, and a few other people who read through the book and gave me advice and thoughts and, and whipped it up into uh, the best shape I could. And as I, uh, I think I've heard, it's one of the best-selling parrot books out there right now. 
it is, you know, right behind your books, oh, but <laughs> but it's doing it's doing fairly well, and and I'm hopeful it'll be out for a while. It'd be great. Yeah. Well, I think it will have a very long shelf life, and and um, it's actually a required reading for some rescue organizations, organizations like the Gabriel Foundation and Parrots First. Isn't that one that you work with quite a bit in LA? Yeah, Parrots First, a great organization. I do uh, foster birds from them for uh, from time to time. But um, that's really exciting to me. That makes me feel like I sort of achieved my goal, you know, and without the idea that other people are picking it up and going, oh, this is what we want the first time bird owner to read. That That's so exciting to me. And fostering birds, I think, what a great education that is for you as far as more experienced training birds that you have never met before, that who knows what their history might be, and you have to start from scratch and figure out how to create a relationship with that animal, do some training so that hopefully it'll be a nice adoptable pet for somebody. It's a great experience and a wonderful challenge. And of course, you know, sometimes the birds turn out not to be the best pets for people. Um, and it, it has taught me a lot of things. And, and one of them has been a big reminder that, yes, you can train anything. But the question is, is it worth your while? You know, I have had a parrot come through that um, I probably could spent a year and really worked with that bird and made him the perfect pet. But he was much more interested in being with birds. So that ultimately, you know, might have been a better situation for him. So it's, it is, it's a, it's a great training experience. I've had that question before too, that, uh, you know, is, have you ever found a bird you can't train? And that's such a difficult question because I, I, I feel the same way. There's always some progress you can make, I think, with almost any of them. But there, there's that question of, is the amount of time that you would invest in that be enough to get you where you might need to for that animal to actually be in somebody's home and is that realistic for somebody that might adopt that animal or, or as you're experiencing with that one bird is a different situation more suitable for that particular animal right well and for this particular bird it turned out there was a place that he could go with a, a bird i mean they weren't breeding birds but he had the potential to go live with another yellow collared macaw which i really felt was a better situation for him i mean he in his body language it was very clear to me that he was much more interested in and his behaviors were much more healthy when he was spending time with other birds as opposed to having me press myself upon him mm -hmm. so yeah you can train anything but it, is it always in the best in, bir the bird's best interest? Maybe not. Right. But of course, if you've got a beloved parrot at home that that's going to be with you for a long time, I sometimes think, well, you know what? You got forty, fifty years to train, so might as well do a little bit if you can. Absolutely. If you love the bird, then every moment you spend training it is not only worth your while but a great deal of fun. Yeah, and good payoff for you in the long run. So one thing people may, you mentioned you've had parrots for about 14 years, but I don't know if everyone knows about your parrots. So tell us a little bit about the parrots you have in your home. Well, I have three parrots. Of course, I just mentioned I have the occasional foster parrot that passes through and the occasional foster dog too. But I have an African gray parrot, Ty, a Senegal parrot named Loki, and a red-bellied parrot named Bally. And like I said, they've been with me for about 14 years and they are um, a constant source of amusement and amazement to me. And I know your African gray talks in your voice exactly because I've heard it. <laughs> <laughs> 
and says some very embarrassing things too. I might add. Oh, will you share? <laughs> Makes for good radio. Come on. <laughs> well, it is really embarrassing when you walk by your parrot with a bottle of beer and he burps. <laughs> I claim that ex-boyfriends have taught him to do that, but most people know better. He does say pretty much everything stupid that I say. I like to think that I'm, I'm, you know, very pragmatic and serious. And when your bird says things like, I'm a chicken hawk and you're a chicken, it's really hard to convince people that you're a serious individual. Because we know you've been walking around your house saying that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, we need to tell people where they can find your book. Where can they find A Parrot for Life? You can find A Parrot for Life in uh, PetSmart, Petco, on Amazon.com. And if you have any local boutique parrot stores, you might be able to find it there as well. And you do have a website, don't you? I do. It's um, www.rebeccakoconnor.com. Or you can just Google Rebecca O'Connor and uh, it'll pop up. But is it better to have Rebecca K. O'Connor in that Google to actually find you? I'm the number one hit if you put in Rebecca O'Connor. Well, (laughs) fancy that. (laughs) And, of course, on your website, you have things, obviously, about your books and your other books, too, not just uh, A Parrot for Life, your romance novel, and some of your falconry stuff. And as I understand, you have a blog as well? Mm Mm-hmm. Um, I have a falconry blog that's uh, been up for about five years now. So if you're interested in reading some more about falconry, you can click on the falconry link and, and it'll take you there. And there's also a page on parrots and a page on my books. Great. You ought to check it out. Well, we're happy to have Rebecca here, and um, she's going to give us our training tip of the week. But before we get there, I'm going to tell you about a few upcoming events. On November 1st, there's a Parrot Behavior and Training Workshop in Shreveport, Louisiana. And then on November 8th and 9th, Robin and I will both be in Austin, Texas, to teach a Parrot Training and Enrichment Weekend. We still have a few spaces open for that, so join us for that. Then um, into 2009, we both get to take a little break for the holidays. But in 2009, I will be in Old Saybrook, Connecticut, teaching a flight training seminar at the Featherlust Farm Bird Store. And then following that in April, on the 18th and 19th, I'll be in Barrie, Ontario, Canada, teaching with Susan Friedman, doing a parrot behavior and training workshop. That'll be a two-day event. And then on May 9th, I will actually be in Finland teaching a two-day seminar. Um, Some more events in um, May include a seminar in France and also in Portugal, and I'll have more details up on that on my website pretty soon. And let's see, we've got some more. Oh, yes, the Best Parrot Conference, the Behavior Enrichment Science and Training Conference in Edison, New Jersey, hosted by Good Bird, Inc. and the Leather Elves. That'll be May 29th through the 31st, so mark your calendars for that one. We know we're telling you in advance, but we want to make sure you're there. And then again, reminders to visit the Rebecca K. O'Connor website, RebeccaKOConnor.com, GoodBirdInc.com, TheLeatherElves.com, and you can always get more information on the Best Parrot Conference at BestParrotConference.com. And, of course, some of our favorite resources for you this week. you got to check out A Parrot for Life and Falcon's Return and maybe that new book on finches if you're into finches. And I do believe Rebecca has something on the horizon. Are you ready to announce it just yet? Oh, sure. Um, I have a falconry memoir. The book's going to be called Lift, and it's about the first season flying my first peregrine falcon, and that'll be coming out from Red Hen Press probably in the next 12 to 18 months. Very good. We'll have to keep an eye out for that. And of course, I'm sure it'll be on your website when it's out as well. Absolutely. Okay. And Rebecca, being a bird trainer herself, is going to give us the training tip of the week. You ready? I I think so. Okay. (laughs) 
<laughs> I guess my training tip of the week would be that um, honesty is the foundation of every great relationship. And to me, that means that you have to really think about what you're reinforcing. So look for behaviors that you really desire in your bird and make sure that those are the ones you're reinforcing. Every time you walk by your bird's cage, if you pay it attention, if you drop a treat in the bowl, make sure that what the bird's doing is something that you like. That way you're being honest. You're telling the bird, this is what I like, and you're clearly communicating it. And then make sure that when you ask a bird something, and this is particular to falconry especially, in falconry you show a bird a lure when you want it to come back to you. You don't put the lure out and then pull it away at the last minute and go, ah, I was just trying to get you in the air. If you ask a bird for something and the bird performs, then make sure you reward it. And um, actually that kind of works for everyone in your life, uh, teenagers, boyfriends. Be, if you're honest in your communications about your relationship, your relationship will go a lot further. So that was way more than just a training your pet tip there, right there. You're talking about training boyfriends and stuff, too. Important tips. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, with that, we're just about out of time. We've got some more topics on the horizon for you. Hopefully, we'll do something on body language, maybe about sexual behavior in parrots. Or how do you teach your parrot to play with a toy? You may have lots of toys in that cage, but maybe your parrot never touches them. And actually, Rebecca even wrote an article on that one time for Good Bird Magazine. Um, so that'll be a great topic for people to listen in on. And I, I want to do one on common parrot myths. I think that would be a fun one. So we've got that on the horizon. And Robin hopes to give you a little bit of discussion on foraging since it's a pretty popular topic out there these days. So with that, if you have any suggestions or questions, you can contact us at robin at petliferadio.com and barbara at petliferadio.com. And for transcripts of the show, just visit petliferadio.com. We'll see you next time. Join us every week on Wings and Things and get a bird's eye view of everything there is to know about pet birds and how to make your frequent flyer a happy camper. Wings and Things, only on PetLifeRadio.com.